Hello, listeners. Welcome to episode two of The General Idea on a Teenager's Take on Shakespeare. Today, I'm going to be talking Shakespearean tragedy with Elise Sharp. Elise is an actor, director, producer, and amateur Shakespeare scholar based in Sacramento, CA. She is also a Shakespeare text coach and has been a guest lecturer on Shakespeare at several high schools throughout California. She has a life goal to perform in all plays of Shakespeare's canon at least once. So far, she's done 15 out of 39, not bad at all. When she's not thinking about Shakespeare, she can be found working on new plays and theatre for young audiences. Thank you so much for joining me, Elise. Thank you for having me, Annabelle. I also want to add that Elise is one of the brilliant hosts of Shakespeare Anyone podcast, which was a huge inspiration for me. So this is, you know, quite a big deal. Yeah, so I'm one half of the team behind Shakespeare Anyone. We're a podcast we like to say we're Shakespeare minus the bardolatry. And we look at one play at a time over the course of uh, several weeks and really do a deep dive into topics that um, are related to the play that you may never have considered before. And then we also look at it as performers of how do we take that deep dramaturgical information and bring it to the stage or how does it apply in performance today? If you haven't checked it out already, please do. Please, seriously, you will not regret it. I have been using these podcasts as a real source for my A-level work, for my own study. It's been really, really helpful. So thank you for that, Elise. Now to start today's episode off, I want to ask you a bit about how you got started with Shakespeare. That's a great question. Um, So my first memory of Shakespeare is um, there's this program here in the United States called Wishbone, which was on our public broadcasting system and which is kind of like educational stuff. We get some stuff from BBC over there. And it's it was this um, Jack Russell Terrier who uh, would be who like insert himself into famous works of literature. So uh, and like tell like in like 30 minutes, kind of a very quick overview of or like his version of these stories. So he would do like the Odyssey and he would be Odysseus and he would do, and like, and it was always also like, there's some sort of like his actual family so like was dealing with something and he would dream up like, oh, this reminds me of this story that I know. And he had an episode on Romeo and Juliet where Wishbone was Romeo. And I remember watching that in fourth grade or before that, I don't know, it just fascinated me. And then, uh, fourth grade, nine years old, uh, 10 years old here in the States. Um, and I, I don't know, it, there was something about Shakespeare that just made me really interested. And then I took what I knew, um, and like rewrote Romeo and Juliet for a, uh, assignment. Uh, we had to do a genre as a, kind of related to our topics today. We had to do a genre assignment in fourth grade and, um, it was like a story competition and, I said, well, I know this. And so I said, I know this story. And one of the genres was genres was romance. And I was like, no one else is going to write in romance. So I can easily win if I write, re- rewrite Romeo and Juliet for like my age group, essentially. And like take very, very simplified, um, adding some jokes that aren't in there. Um, and then, yeah, I just, I, uh, that was kind of the start of it. And then, um, I stuck with it and just found any opportunity I could to engage with Shakespeare. Um, and growing up in California, I'm very close to the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. So I was able to go there when I was younger and see Shakespeare pro- done professionally. And then, yeah, it's been 
just kind of this lifelong now uh, thing that's always been present in my life. That's brilliant. Uh, rewriting Shakespeare is a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. I tried doing it once. Well, I wrote a play that was based on A Midsummer Night's Dream. It was an online play, so I gave it the very original name of A Midsummer Night's Zoom, and I, it's on YouTube. <laughs> so, <laughs> so if you're interested in that, you can actually find it. But it was basically a group of actors putting on a production of A Midsummer Night's Dream, rehearsing on Midsummer Night's Eve, and then kind of the magic of the play comes to life and they get transformed into their characters. Wow. So <laughs> that was a whole adventure. Yeah. Um, I don't remember much of my rewriting of Romeo and Juliet. I I think it was mostly that like we're, you know, a boy and a girl who like each other. And then I, I had some I remember I had something with um like in the tomb scene when uh, she pulled up like I did the oh happy dagger moment but because I was in fourth grade and like gross out humor was huge I was like oh like obviously it's in his boot and like it smells like feet and Juliet's got to react to that um so that's like the one thing I remember and that's I don't I don't know where that paper is and um hopefully it doesn't exist anymore (laughs) but that's what I remember that's a great start though I think Romeo and Juliet is a great play to start getting into and obviously it's one of the plays we're gonna be discussing today so I suppose moving on to the tragedies portion of the episode, the first question I've really got to ask is what is or what defines a Shakespearean tragedy? I think that's that is a really great question. So and I have an answer for you in like two parts. Um, so when Shakespeare's friends were assembling the first folio, they actually designated some of the plays as tragedies, right? So we have a group of plays that are by Shakespeare's contemporaries, they just called them tragedies. These are the tragedies. And it was a genre that existed in theater during Shakespeare's time. And some of those plays are now considered late romances or problem plays, which I know you're covering in other episodes, right? So those have been like redefined by modern scholars uh, because what tends to define a Shakespearean tragedy is that... um, for lack of a better way to say it, people are dead at the end. Like our heroes are dead. Um, that's kind of, that's how they end. Or um, people will say in like, conversely, they'll say what defines a comedy? Well, people aren't dead at the end of Shakespeare. It's not necessarily hilariously funny, but people aren't dead. So that's where it is. <laughs> so it's not a tragedy. Yeah. As I discussed in my last episode with Victoria and Marshall, there's often like a brush with death or a brush with darker themes mm-hmm. enough to make you uneasy, but yeah, it doesn't go all the way. So yeah. Yeah. Whereas I, whereas tragedies definitely go all the way with dark themes and we explore some really dark things in them. And we also have uh, the supernatural in quite a few of these plays as part of something that the characters encounter and that guides their actions or their decisions. And again, yeah, even... The idea of how far the supernatural guides their decision. I mean, that's a great question in Macbeth. How far is Macbeth responsible mm-hmm. for his own tragedy? Because just because the witches have given him this prophecy, does it mean that he has to, you know, go out and kill the king? Right. In order for it to come true. Mm-hmm. And um, Hamlet also has similarly, so much of what people say is Hamlet's inaction is actually Hamlet trying to figure out whether or not the ghost is actually his father or whether it is a demon trying to trick him and whether or not this is real or not. Like that's, he does not, um, he's not being inactive because he is 
just not like not able to make a decision. He's making a decision to investigate and he's actively investigating. Is this true or not before he does something that can um, before he takes his action. So he has to be like sure of his action. And we also see ghosts in Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar haunts Brutus, you know, so which maybe or maybe not causes Brutus to second guess what he did. Yes. Yes, and we have other plays in which we have the supernatural evoked. King Lear, for instance, poor Tom, mm-hmm. evokes the names of all these different fiends and demons. Right, yeah, yeah. I don't remember all the names off the top of my head, but there are <laughs> a lot of them. Yes, 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 yes. And I think Shakespeare took that from a pamphlet written at the time. Well, there's a lot going on, um, especially around the time that King Lear was written, um, believed to be written sometime between like 1605 and 1606, there was a lot of religious movements happening. Like the Puritan movement was this formerly kind of fringe religious movement that was gaining in power. And um, they were certainly people who were publishing written documents on, you know, yeah, like the devils that exist. And King James had just recently written his own version of yeah, demonology. his demonology, which was this like, yeah, yeah, this like list. That's probably, that might be what you were yes. thinking of, of just this lit like massive tomb of information on the evil spirits and demons that exist that exist in the world. Yes. So Shakespearean tragedy is where everybody dies at the end. But there's a point in the tragedies at least. There's a point where you think it's going to turn out okay. Yeah. To an extent. Yeah, Romeo and Juliet for instance, mm-hmm. the first two acts seem fine. Yeah. Comic. Comedy. Yeah. I think actually that's something that all of these plays have in common is that they there is comedy in all of them. Mm. Like it's not just sad because in order to be sad we have to have we have to care about these people. So we do see in all of these plays the hero or anti-hero that we are rooting for or not necessarily rooting for but supposed to care about. We see them before all of this happened. You know, we see who they were and then things start changing for them things start getting bad for them or they're they encounter something and they make the wrong decision and we see their uh, descent and their decline uh, so that we are affected when they die at the end yeah and continuing with the romeo and juliet example we have two young people we have juliet who's not yet 14 mm-hmm. romeo not quite sure how old he is in my head i normally put him between 16 and 18 ish mm-hmm. Because he does seem older than Juliet. But we have these two young people who don't confide in their families, who find love in another source because they Mm -hmm. don't find what they need within their own circle. Mm -hmm. And, of course, that love is doomed by their families. And I think that's the greater tragedy. Mm -hmm. The fact that they have to, you know, they have to turn to each other Mm -hmm. because there's no one else. It's just a broken family. Right, yeah, that they... They don't have necessarily the supports that they need or the things that get in their the way of their love lead to them making decisions that are rather extreme, especially for, I mean, they, with Romeo and Juliet and with a lot of these plays, there's a heightened sense of, I would say there's either a heightened sense or there's some sort of playing with time. I see it in um, Macbeth, in Hamlet, uh, King Lear as well, Othello, where you're watching time also be kind of a 
fact, like we talked about supernatural, but like time is also like a big factor in why these things are sad. So with Romeo and Juliet, this takes place over like a week of time, maybe at most. And by the end of a week, multiple young people are dead because these adults couldn't resolve their own problems, right? And so it's a bit of a like a lesson or a to, you know, people who are in power of like what well, the decisions you make or your inability to resolve problems that are yours can lead to the death of an entire generation for a community. Yeah. And that's another thing. Tragedies, because yeah, everybody's dead. There's nothing to move forward from. It's not regenerative. Whereas comedies, mm-hmm. you know, end with marriage, the yeah, whole idea of procreation. We've got the future. Mm-hmm. We've got the future for these plays. But we don't here. Yeah. And and tragedies end with just everybody. You know, um, so many of them end with um, some relatively, I'm going to say relatively minor because it it varies, but it's not somebody that we're following the whole time. There's somebody who's been on the periphery, basically taking over, surveying the damage and saying, well, we move, we have to move forward from here. And here's what's going to happen. You know, we ha- at the end of Macbeth, we have um, Malcolm saying like, okay, like Macbeth is dead. So is, a, so are a lot of other people, right? We've just seen a war happen. And, but like, now this is done and we're going to go, I'm going to now be king. We're going to go see me crowned at Schoon. At the end of King Lear, we have Edmund basically delivering a very similar, like, wow, that happened. And now we need to regroup and um, redefine what our kingdom is. And yeah. yeah. Oh, yes. Edgar. Thank you. (laughs) Edmund is dead too. Um, Yeah. So, and Hamlet, we have Fortinbras come in at the end and go, wait a second what happened here who we've just heard and Fortinbras is someone who we've just basically heard about for three to five hours yeah three to five hours yes (laughs) so like you were saying it's just like it's complete devastation um at the end of the play it's not just necessarily that like our our hero is dead yeah and that again it's often yeah the tragedy of the individual as well being in like the wrong play for that particular person the wrong situation like I, I've used this example before, but if you put Othello in Hamlet and Hamlet in Othello, Hamlet would think a bit more about, you know, what's being said about Desdemona. Mm-hmm. And Othello would not, you know, wait. He would just go and kill Claudius. Yeah, I mean, I think too, I, I think that's very true. Or Othello would listen more carefully because Othello's like tragedy is that he trusts the wrong people. He listens and believes the wrong people. And we're the only people, we as the audience are the only people Mm. who know that Iago is doing what he's doing and that Iago's not trustworthy. So I think, yeah, if you put Othello in Hamlet, he would just, he would maybe trust Horatio. He'd maybe listen to Horatio because Horatio has some language of like, maybe we, maybe we don't believe the ghost. Maybe, maybe we don't. So maybe like there wouldn't be this um, play within a play or the need for an antic disposition because also who knows what Othello would do if encountered with a ghost because he doesn't have one actually but yeah he might he might just go oh okay well I'm gonna that looks like my dad I trust it I'm gonna go kill Claudius and just be because I believe it and Hamlet is just less trustworthy because he also lives in an environment that isn't trustworthy he lives in a court that is filled with surveillance and gossip and 
Othello lives in a world that isn't a court. It's not a, it's not a court. It doesn't have the gossip. He lives in a more military based society. Yeah. And maybe has more in common with like Coriolanus than Hamlet. Yeah, I agree with that. And then there's the other tragedy of individuality. I mean, if you consider Richard III, which is a history, but it's often looked at as a tragedy. Mm -hmm. I could be talking more about that next week. (laughs) So Richard's tragedy is that, you know, society will only view him a certain way. And he says, fine, you know, if you're not going to let me be anything else, I'm determined to play a villain. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be a villain. Yeah. Which is almost the exact opposite of Coriolanus who we see Caius Martius being told like by his world that he needs to step up and be a politician. And he says, that's not who I am. I don't want to be that. And he's forced to. And then his tragedy is that he fails at the thing he knew he was going to fail at, that society set him up to fail at. And he leaves, commits treason like in multiple ways, but ends up saving Rome and dying for doing the thing that he didn't want to, that he like didn't want to do, which was you know, serving Rome in a way that wasn't what he wanted, what he knew he was good at, which is war. Yeah. And then in King Lear, a huge part of Lear's tragedy, a huge part of at least what we call his madness, is the fact that, you know, he's giving up his title as king. I mean, he still wants to, you know, maintain the trappings of a king, you know, his entourage of a hundred soldiers, which, yeah, there's a lot of to and froing about that in play. But Leo, when he's no longer in that position as king, when he doesn't have that authority, he doesn't know what to do with himself. And then he starts questioning what man really is. When, I mean, the fool tells him, well, he implies that Leo is a fool. And when Leo asks, dost thou call me fool boy? Mm -hmm. He says, all thy other titles thou hast cast off or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. And all he's left with is, you know, being a fool. And that was quite a thing to say in the reign of King James. Right. Staunch believer in the divine right of kings. Yes. Yeah. Very early on in King James's reign, it's a really interesting piece. And I think we're starting to get into this thing that I was like, oh, I could also, we could also talk about how a lot of these plays are potentially political commentary for what was going on in between in London in the late 1500s and early 1600s, where King Lear is all about what happens when you give away your, you know, it's about like anxieties of succession, which the country had recently gone through with Elizabeth, with an aging mon. And here's a story of an aging monarch who can't decide who is going to rule over them. And like, here's what could it's it's potentially a here's what could have happened instead of us getting the good, you know, getting King James. We had like, what if all of these other people had been just given the throne instead while Elizabeth was still alive? What if she hadn't made a choice? And we were divided. Instead, we're united under this king who not everybody was happy about. But, you know, Shakespeare was also writing for his patron, who was King James. Yeah, exactly. I think, yeah, Shakespeare wrote Edgar as kind of a James-like figure at the end. Mm -hmm. You know, the weight of these sad times we must obey, speak not what we feel, but what we ought to say. Mm -hmm. And that's interesting because in the quarto version of King Lear, which is also, it's actually called a the true chronicle history of King Lear. Right, yeah. Which is very interesting. The final lines of the play are given to Albany in that text, and then in the folio they're given to Edgar. Mm -hmm. So the idea that, you know, he leads the country forward, because whilst we have, you know, we have all this death and we have this negation of 
regeneration of restoration. Yeah, we still have this restoration just from different people. Others have to go on from where the play has taken them. Mm-hmm. Right, a, like a transfer of power from someone who made a mistake and did the wrong thing into somebody who can potentially do the right thing. I, we see that a lot in the plays that are written during James's term. Macbeth, too, has here is somebody who did the wrong thing and here is Malcolm who, you know, came is is the rightful, is the, by divine right of kings, rightful heir and also, you know, who James was a descendant of. So like a very far family member of James. So this is how we get to James. It's that, like that play says. Um, and yeah, both of those plays have this like, and here's how we ensure like a transition of power. Like here's maybe the person who's going to be a peaceful ruler because here's somebody who wasn't. Yes. Yes. I completely agree with that. And I find it interesting as well, the way Shakespeare rewrote his sources the tragedy because obviously he used sources mm-hmm. for most of his plays and if you look at Macbeth mm-hmm. and the source story of Macbeth which I've talked about in a few previous episodes go listen to them seriously I know I'm self-promoting here but go listen to them <laughs> so Macbeth in the original story of Macbeth Banquo was you know in on it he was in on killing Duncan of course you can't do that when you know James claims descent from Banquo that was a you know, very bad idea if you wanted to, you know, get past mm-hmm. the senses and not get thrown in prison like Ben Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> which which Shakespeare was perhaps like very adept at avoiding yeah. prison, getting, you know, you don't end up with the king as your sponsor by making waves, you know, um, by saying things you shouldn't say. You get there by being very good at putting in what you need to, to say what you want to say. And the plays can be seen in, as like this conversation between London and court and commentary on what's going on in court. And Shakespeare was also known to take, courtiers were known to pay Shakespeare, pay the Kingsmen to put things in their plays as propaganda. So, you know, you don't, you, you also just like don't get far if you're just writing for in this time, if you are just writing what you want to write and what your own beliefs are. Yeah. You have to fit with a certain societal ideal. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if that didn't suit the groundlings, there were plenty of rotten fruits and vegetables coming your way. So <laughs> <laughs> it was, yeah, on every level of society, it's about pleasing the people necessarily about being original Mm -hmm. and that's something that uh i initially struggled with when i found out that shakespeare based it off of you know previous sources and you know wrote this way just to please the people i i was a a bit disappointed by that in the beginning and then of course i started looking into it and the kinds of things that could happen if you didn't conform right and then i realized okay he actually yeah this makes sense and this is actually really clever yeah I think you bring up a great point about being disappointed, though. I think that in our modern day, Shakespeare can be sort of put up on a pedestal of this like solitary, this idea of this solitary genius who's just writing by himself with no one else. And like these ideas are just, you know, he wrote Hamlet just from his brain. And I think that is how we get to people like questioning whether or not Shakespeare existed, because they're like, how can someone do that? It's like, well, no one did that actually he he wasn't doing that he was taking you know things that he learned things that were in popular culture um things that were in his 
you know, modern day media and bringing them all together to create to create this plays that he wrote. There's commentary on current events. There's references to popular uh, like other pieces of popular literature or other plays at the time. And it's a really actually creative environment that he's creating in where there's a lot of ideas circulating and influencing each other. And so really it's like, and like as, as someone um, in my, like outside of Shakespeare, when I work on new works, that's very evident. Like that's, that's just how playwrights yeah. playwright. Exactly. Yeah. It's very much the creative process. And it's a beautiful thing. Shakespeare used so many contemporary works, previous works as stepping stones, you know, all the way yeah, back to Hollinshed's Chronicles and, you know, mm-hmm. Plutarch, Life of Antony, for instance, to the works of Marlowe. Mm-hmm. Right. And then there are other playwrights, you know, he's art isn't made in a vacuum. And this is stepping outside of tragedies for a moment, um, you know, with for example, Taming of the Shrew, there was almost immediately a play that responded to Taming of the Shrew um, and as a, like a sequel written by John Fletcher, Tamer Tamed. So this is a this is a world where all of the theater makers are also like interacting with each other. They're seeing each other's work and they're responding to it and collaborating on it. And that's also, I think, how we get, you know, you spoke to the differences between the first, between the quarto and the first folio of Lear. How do we get those revisions? Like, were they mistake? I think some people go, oh, well, it was a mistake. It was a printer's mistake. It's very possible that it was performed one way at one point, And then someone said, you know, you should really give the those lines to Edmund. It doesn't make sense that Albany says them. Oh, Edgar. I don't know why I keep saying Ed- Edmund. Huh? There are so many characters. There are so many characters. It's- I'm just, I'm just ready, standing. I'm, I'm just standing up for bastards, apparently today. But yeah, we're giving, you know, someone could have said, give those lines to Edgar or you know, when they performed it in front of, maybe when they performed it in front of the common people, they did it this way. And when they performed it at court or on tour, they did, they gave the lines here. And then at the end, in publishing the first folio, Harry Condal and John Hemmings said, we're going to use this. This is going to be the like version that worked the best. You know, yeah, creative process. It's not, these things didn't come out of Shakespeare the way that we have them. Exactly. And talking just, I want to talk about Edmund briefly. We were talking earlier about uh, Richard III and his tragedy being, you know, he's cast into this role. And so he decides that, okay, if this is the only role society will allow me to play, I'll play it. It's a similar thing with Edmund. He's illegitimate. He talks here, why brand they, why brand they us with bastardy, with baseness, bastardy, base, base, all of that. And he is, yeah, he decides, you know, to make nature his goddess, nature, mm-hmm. you know, human nature the very nature of being and this word comes up a lot in the play he talks about you know his brother's nature being very susceptible to his plans he's just yeah he's he's deciding not to conform to the traditional societal beliefs of you know order from the stars and the gods he's deciding just to go with nature because in that order he doesn't have a place Mm -hmm. or the place that he wants or the place that he feels that he belongs and that is so sad when you think about it. Mm-hmm. It is, yeah. But it's also like why he is a fascinating character to watch because you kind of root for him for a little bit until he starts doing really, I mean, he does terrible things from the immediate, but you're like, I, I get it. I get why you're mad. And I get why you have this, you know, this angst and why you're doing what you're doing. And so you enjoy, like as an audience, we enjoy watching what Edmund does for a while 
And then it starts going off. Like he has a parallel journey to Lear where he makes this decision and kind of just ends up without what he wanted in the end. Yeah. And with Lear, of course, that source was heavily rewritten because actually that had a happy ending. Cordelia married Edgar, I believe, or is that in Name Tate's reworking? I, I think, I know there's, I think that the reworking is a little bit more heavy on the, like, regeneration, making it into a happy story. At any rate, in the original source story, Lear doesn't die, Cordelia is restored, everything's fixed, happy families. That is what Shakespeare does, and that version was found so upsetting mm-hmm. that it was a station. Then, yeah, Nahum Tate rewrote the play with a happy ending, mm-hmm. with Cordelia marrying Edgar, and, you know, this future suddenly appears for a very bleak play, and it was played like that for a long time. And then later, in the 20th century especially, yeah, Lear was rediscovered because in, you know, after the wars, after First World War, Second World War, after the bleakness and tragedy of that Lear became a play very much of the time yeah and it'd be and it surged in popularity and I think you know we also see it with Romeo and Juliet too where there was a period where um Romeo and Juliet escape and go about their lives kind of like the late 1700s 1800s um there's a lot more like happy Shakespeare it's the there's this book of uh, like the family Shakespeare that like kind of reworks all of Shakespeare's stories and makes them a little bit easier to digest and a little bit happier. And that's really what's known of Shakespeare for that's or like that's the popular impression of Shakespeare for a long time. And then, yeah, after after the world wars with, you know, there's a need to process the grief and tragedy that are in these as catharsis for modern audiences and so they get re rediscovered and redone because of that yeah they get redone they get rewritten the victorians had a lot of fun with shakespeare's texts Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then yeah we have the lovely word bodlerize yes which i think yeah that comes from a particularly heavy-handed editor Mm -hmm. shakespeare's texts are not always easy to read they're not always you know I mean, the whole idea of tragedy is catharsis. It's, you know, venting these emotions within a fictional context. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, yeah, Shakespeare certainly went to town with that. Yes. <laughs> and, it's, and it's also what was popular at the time, you know, um, in his time, some seeing some of these, seeing gore on stage was exciting. Seeing, like, we haven't talked about, like, Titus Andronicus yes. is a tragedy. And it's Shakespeare's first tragedy. It's his er, like an early, early play of his. And um, that's because that's what was really, really popular in Shakespeare's time where was going to the theater and seeing kind of like blood and guts and things that make you squeamish. And, you know, that's still popular today. You know, the Saw franchise doesn't exist without, you know, people wanting to go see blood, guts, torture on screen or in a theater there's a part of humanity that likes that exactly and to give the listeners a quick summary of titus andronicus because it's not one of the most read shakespeare's plays um there's at least one cut off hand cut off tongue actually no there's several cut off mm-hmm. hands sorry 
there's there's three, three cutoff cut hands. hands. Um, cut off tongue. Most famously, there's cannibalism. Yes, there's two two very um, not delicious pies. Mm-hmm. Somehow, Tamora manages to get through. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and 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 then there's also and then and there's also sexual assault, and that is described very graphically, and all of this stems from essentially there's this roman general titus andronicus who oh yeah Ro- i think yeah you can say rome and then kind of yeah <laughs> you can get the gist of it he captures this he's he's just come back from battle and he has these political prisoners uh tamara and the goth who is queen of the goths and through some miscommunication or misunderstanding essentially the emperor is like thank you Tam-, goes from the emperor is like i'm gonna marry your daughter because like a thank you for doing all that you've done. And then he sees Tamara and is like, actually, she's if I could choose another wife, I would choose her. She's really pretty. You have Aaron in that play. Mm-hmm. He's an interesting yeah. character. And there are two things I particularly want to discuss uh, in mm-hmm. Cut Sandronicus. So the first is the way Lavinia manages to finally communicate what happened to her. And that's something, you know, metamorphoses, over the metamorphoses. Yes. That is, Ovid's Metamorphoses is a huge source for Titus Andronicus, and it is referenced multiple, multiple times. She's consistently compared to uh, Philomela, who in Metamorphoses is um, assaulted and has her tongue cut out, and, but is able to tell what happened to her by sewing the story. And Philomela is known for her beautiful singing voice, yeah, but she can no longer sing. And then she sews what happened to her into a tapestry and as a way to communicate and then like as a reward the gods turn her into the nightingale so that her she can sing again she her and her sister into she's the nightingale and her sister's another bird that's where the nightingale's song comes from and why it sounds so sad is because philomela is constantly lamenting her what happened to her but lavinia is constantly compared to her because what's done to lavinia is worse than what's done to Philomela and she is uh, both of her hands are cut off and her tongue is also removed um, to prevent her from doing exactly what Philomela did but um, her uncle and her father learn how to kind of interpret you know her her gestures and then her uncle figures out using his cane his staff that he can you know hold it with his feet and his mouth and write in the sand with it. And he shows Lavinia and she is able to name her rapists and who are Tamara's sons. And then her father is able to get his revenge. On top of on top of all that, like Tamara's sons have also like killed Lavinia's husband, the emperor's brother, and framed her two brothers for it. So her brothers have also de- so this family the Tamara and her family have basically for revenge of in in revenge for Titus not letting that not pardoning their oldest son Tamara's oldest son she does these things then Titus does these other things to her and it's like this it's it's a revenge it's a revenge tragedy revenge tragedy yeah and it what a revenge tragedy as well and speaking of revenge yeah Tamora literally comes to Titus in the figure of revenge she's pretending she's revenge her sons are rape and murder right it's ironic because that's exactly what they both did so and titus pretends to be fooled by it and asks that rape and murder stay with him mm-hmm. then of course he 
you know, quits the pretense and um, bakes some interesting pies. Yes. <laughs> so that's his final act of revenge. Yeah. Which is part of part of that is also this like like violation for for an early modern audience that would have been this violation of trust in, in the host. Like if you were hosting and we see that as another theme throughout the throughout these tragedies is the idea of like the host violating the social contract when you are hosting somebody in your house. Gloucester when he gets his eyes plucked it, out. Yes. That's exactly what Duncan. happens. His own, his own castle. And Duncan, yeah, in Macbeth's castle, murdered yeah. in his sleep. Yeah, because you're supposed to be safe when you're being, as a host, you are responsible for the safety of your guests in early modern England. And it's a really, so for the early modern audience, this would have been like, for us, it for us it, it is gross to think about those pies, but it, there's this added layer for an early modern audience of, on top of all this, you have done some like a huge social taboo of violating the trust that these of just having guests in your house, um, something you're absolutely not supposed to do. Yeah, and yeah, another thing that comes to mind is, for instance, the Capulet party where Romeo has shown up mm-hmm. and Tybalt is like, "Let's go." And Lord is like, right? no, no. He's a guest in our house, right? Like he, it. There's, there's an example of that social contract working. We also see in Coriolanus when Coriolanus goes to Ophidius's, there is this like, well, you are a guest in my house, so you're going to be. We're gonna talk, <laughs> and like be civil while you're in my house, even though we are mortal enemies. Exactly, it's a very interesting thing, and yeah, in the end, tragedy. I think is about society breaking down. It's about what happens when we push, you know, breaking the rules to the limit, mm-hmm. to the extent that the rules fall apart. And we have this whole idea of nothingness, mm-hmm. particularly in Leah, but they're not, yeah, what comes after? Yeah. What comes after everything that's happened? How do we move forward from this? The prince in Romeo and Juliet, Prince Isclus, he says, yeah, some shall be pardoned, some punished. And so we have this idea of, you know, more, mm-hmm. like, uh, how much more punishment do these families need? They're seeing their children dead. If anything should teach them, uh, as it does, because, yeah, Montague talks about raising a statue of Juliet in gold, I believe. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, the fact that people need to be punished is the returning of that social contract, of that social order. So, like, that's because that is the law, like you have been punished there's nothing yeah there's nothing we can imagine that would be worse but if you broke the but to return social order to these worlds we have to reestablish it with those like end speeches and i think you also started to get into something that i like to talk about when we're talking about tragedies which is the kind of like modern genres that these actually are a little bit more like yeah i often think that you know if we just look at them as like sad play we're doing them a disservice. And when we can find elements of modern genres that we don't call, because I think we've modern media and literature and film has gone from the idea of tragedy and now there's a bunch of subgenres within that. So we have, you know, with Tyus Andronicus, I think that is 100% like a horror movie hmm. or that that is that is the horror genre. But with Julius Caesar and Coriolanus and actually a lot of the Roman plays, the plays that take place in Rome, it, they are political thrillers. Macbeth as Macbeth and 
Hamlet and King Lear and Othello can be psychological thrillers where we should be audiences should be still on the edges of their seats, not knowing what these characters are going to do because we we have more information than they do or because we're seeing all these pieces and we don't know where they're where they're going. Even though, even though these plays have been around for over 400 years, there's still this possibility to keep an audience on their edge of this on the edge of their seats because it is in the text of that like something I mentioned earlier of like the time, the pacing, how quickly things move. I saw someone say, this isn't my original idea, but I thought I think it's really apropos and I don't know who said it, so I can't credit them, but they said Othello is like watching a car crash in slow motion. You know it's going to happen because you have been like you have all the information, you have all the pieces, and you are just hoping someone avoids it and then it doesn't happen. And then like it happens anyway. And that's where, like, we stay on the edge of our seats watching it. I was just going to say, in the same vein, in Romeo and Juliet, we have the whole play given away in initial sonnet. And the sonnet is a traditional, you know, form of, uh, particularly the Petrarchan sonnet, a form of expressing love. It's such a beautiful thing. And it, it really, it's a fitting form to describe how love turns tragic, not because of love, but because of hate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about that, you brought up that sonnet, what's interesting is that, yeah, it is the form of love poetry, but the themes, if you go in and look for uh, like what that poem is actually saying and any, and you compare like words that relate to love and words that relate to um, violence, war, um, the grudge, there's so much more. So it's a subversion of that Petrarchan love poem and Petrarchan love potentially in general um to see like here's what this like can lead to here's this turned on its head and turned into you know just like we can see you know some some artists today take popular genres and go okay but what if this was a scary movie what if this was horror or you know i'm going to take trappings of this and turn it and make it a not happy story not not a yeah (laughs) i think yeah in shakespeare's time tragedy has so many different subgenres within it it was just yeah it was just a big group in which you could just throw all the plays with sad endings nowadays we have more nuance for that but yeah the way Shakespeare worked with tragedy you know okay so in a tragedy they all die in the end but I can do so many different things before that happens Mm -hmm. I think he helped create these genres honestly I think he was definitely part of the journey that got us to defining them I mean yeah I think that he is a source for a lot of um you know a modern political thriller will come out and people go oh it's like Richard the Third or Richard the Second meets Macbeth, or oh, this is like like, and you'll watch it and you're like, okay, yeah, it's about like somebody who's ambitious, <laughs> you know, who and their ambition is their downfall. But like, it is a cultural, at the very least, like these tragedies are the cultural currency and touchstones that we go back to to understand the genres that we have today, some of the genres that we have today, and work that we're doing today. Exactly. Yeah, I couldn't have put it better than that. One little idea I want to talk about in the Romeo and Juliet prologue. So I'll just 
recite the first bit of it. Two households, both alike in dignity, in fair Verona, where we lay our scene, from ancient grudge break to new mutiny, where civil blood makes civil hands unclean. From forth the fatal loins of these two foes, a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life. And I just want to pause on those last two words, their life. Mm -hmm. Not their lives, their life. The idea is that they are one. Yeah. In their love. And that is so sad. Yeah. Also, you know, it really, if I was like, if we had time to like sit and like unpack this, um, the idea of, is it, we assume that the there is the star-crossed lovers, but it could also be the two foes. From forth the fatal loins of these two foes, a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life. So the lovers could be taking the life of the foes. That is a brilliant interpretation. Which is which is what, ha- like, these, the parents in Romeo and Juliet are not, like, communication is not great in that play, period. That, that is a that is a hurdle that our hero, that our heroes are up against. Um, but they're not disengaged from their children. The play starts with Lady Montague asking Benvolio, like, what's going on with Romeo? Like he ha- he's, he's been seeming really off and I like can't get through to him. And I'm paraphrasing extremely. Um, yeah. So she's, she's, and she's the parent that dies and, but she's not disengaged. You know, they have, there's also this idea out there that, um, you know, Juliet's mother is not that much older than her. And she maybe had Juliet around the time that she was Juliet's age. And what we know about, and this was known also in Shakespeare's time of like, what happens um, to young women who give birth too early and how that can really, you know, so she's um, potentially dealing with a lot of physical and mental, um, you know, complications that came about giving birth because she gave birth so young and um by there's a possibility that by trying to marry Juliet to Paris um and Lord Capulet's even like hey like we can wait like Paris like we we can like wait <laughs> you know you you don't have to marry her but we can be betrothed and we can give this some time and you know he's there's this possibility that they are trying to prevent um with Juliet what happened to her mother um, and the reason why her mother is, you know, potentially distant is because uh, she's a child as well. Yeah, in a sense, Ju- being like having a child that young, Juliet, whilst being her daughter, kind of ruined her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in a sense, yeah, mentally, physically. So that disconnect, and I think that's another tragedy because Juliet, being so young, mm-hmm. that was it wasn't normal for girls to get married back then. The right. average age was twenty three. Mm-hmm. 23 26 for men 23 for women yeah it, it just like today like that's not too far off from today not too far yeah and yeah so this idea so that's one of the reasons why Juliet's age is like so it's specified we don't get specific ages a lot in Shakespeare but the fact that it is like down to oh yeah the day um of like when she will turn 14 um that's called out because it's supposed to be like that's also supposed to be something that like as an audience we're going they're too young they're too young and this is a like this isn't okay and her running off with Romeo you know the parents aren't necessarily only mad about it because it's their mortal enemy but because she's too young and they're trying to and she maybe doesn't understand you know the things that they're trying to prevent happening to her so yeah so it's it's so back to my original point of like 
the there could be that these two cross star cross lovers and the you know the idea of like your hope your and like your lifeline and being your children the foe like the star cross lovers and that for their parents as well like their hope and their their future and the hopes that they had as parents yeah exactly so yeah while we have like the tragedy of age in leah Mm -hmm. we have the tragedy of youth in juliet and yeah lady capulet that's a figure i haven't really thought about much before but it's brilliant thank you so much elise this has been really enjoyable i think we're gonna have to wrap up for today yeah but it was such a delight to talk to you annabelle thank you yeah this was perfect this is honestly such an enjoyable discussion I love talking Shakespeare. This is why I do a podcast. I could do it forever. Exactly. So just to finish off the episode, how about you tell the listeners where they can find you after this? Oh, yeah, sure. So um, you can find our podcast if you liked hearing me and Annabelle talk. You can listen to me and my co-host Courtney talk more about Shakespeare. Um, We are just finishing up our series on A Midsummer Night's Dream right now and but we've done um Macbeth we've done King Lear we've done Twelfth Night and oh no I'm completely forgetting one uh but uh so um ha- like Hamlet Hamlet did you say Hamlet yeah we did not say <laughs> I did not say Hamlet and that has you know one of an episode that I'm very proud of um Hamlet um and we're gonna we're about to start our next one this summer which I can't say yet but you can find us at shakespeareanyone.com we're also on Instagram at Shake at, at Shakespeare Anyone Pod and at Shakespeare Anyone wherever you get your podcasts. Excellent. Fabulous. Thank you again, Elise. Hope you've enjoyed this as much as I have, listeners. And I will see you in a moment in the Teenagers Take. Welcome to the Teenagers Take. Tragedy is a fascinating genre because it proclaims its own bleakness. When we go to see a tragedy, we can tell that things are going to end badly for the characters on stage, whereas a comedy, from its very name, tells us that things will end comfortably enough that we can laugh at what's taking place, even while contemplating it. Interestingly, tragedy subverts many of comedy's characteristics. For instance, we have disguise in King Lear in the figure of Kent as Caius, and depending on your train of thought, Cordelia. Check out my episode last season with Alice Bloomer for more on that. We have deception in Romeo and Juliet. Juliet drinks a potion, pretends she's dead, and her lover believes it. A similar situation takes place in Much Ado. Well, sounds the death like slumber. We have fools, just as we do in comedies, with King Lear's fool singing the same refrain, hey ho, the wind and the rain, as Feste in The Twelfth Night. In the last two episodes, The concept of posterity has been heavily discussed, with the typical marriage conclusion of comedy culminating in a promised future for the characters of the play. But in tragedies we don't get that, or rather, we get restoration in a new order, as with Edgar in King Lear, Malcolm in Macbeth, Fortinbras in Hamlet, and even Lucius in Titus Andronicus, Titus's sole surviving son and child after Titus kills Lavinia, which is its own separate problem. In other cases, this restoration is not achieved in the same fashion. In Romeo and Juliet, the Montagues and Capulets reconcile with a mutual show of pomp and circumstance for their dead children, 
but as Lord Capula has talked earlier about being past his dancing days, they're all beyond childbearing age or capacity, as we can see in Elisa's brilliant point about Lady Capulet. In the end, these restorative endings highlight the unsustainable mechanisms of the tragic narrative, such as the tragedy of a young mother who is unable to form a bond with her child, the lack of which love causes her to seek it elsewhere beyond the boundaries of her family. Moreover, the tragedy of hatred for no clear reason, as we find out. Again, many aspects of Romeo and Juliet can be funny. Consider the thumb-biting first scene, for example, and basically any scene with Mercutio and or the nurse. But the fact is, the play's premise is the fact that this society is not viable. I'm going to briefly quote an article by Kiernan Ryan in which he references both Nietzsche and Sonnet 107. When the visionary German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche wrote, We children of the future, how could we be at home in this today? He might have been speaking for all Shakespeare's tragic heroes, who are heroic precisely because they could never have been at home in there today. Nor is it that surprising, since they are the creations of a dramatist who was himself a child of the future, and who remains to this day, four centuries after his death, the prophetic soul of the wide world dreaming on things to come. So many different moral and ethical dilemmas are discussed within these tragedies. So many, in fact, that it's not surprising that dramatists are still unpicking their meanings to this day. Hamlet's internal crisis over whether the ghost is his father or a devil, Aaron's harsh portrayal fitting with societal stereotypes as a villain versus his staunch defense of his and Tamora's child, I mean, we can't help but sympathize with him, the roles of parent and child in the lamentable grief of King Lear, these are tricky to explain in just one episode. So we'll be returning to these in a later season of A Teenager's Take on Shakespeare. For now, I hope you enjoyed this episode and do join me again next week for a spirited discussion on Shakespeare's histories. Bye! <laughs>